Welcome to the Fix Your Sex Podcast, where we talk all things sex. I am your host, Amina, and I'm a somatic sexologist, sacred sex coach and sex doula, tantric body worker, pleasure activist, and all-around erotic badass. I am here to revolutionize the way we think about pleasure, sex, and intimacy, and to guide us all back in love with our bodies. On this podcast, we are reimagining the orgasm, discovering erotic pleasure beyond the genitals, and decolonizing our relationship with the body. For the next hour or so, I invite you to open your mind, your heart, and your legs for a powerful conversation about erotic embodiment and your orgasmic potential. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Fix Your Sex podcast. It's been a minute. And so I think maybe we could just start by settling in to where we're at, just kind of noticing what's happening in our bodies, in our surroundings, whether you're listening to this on the road, lying in your bed, or doing things, little things around the house. Just take a moment and notice what's present what you're feeling in your body, what things are standing out to you in the space that you're in, how much attention you have available to pay to me and to yourself in this moment. For the next 45 minutes or so, we are going to dive into some conversations about sex and sexuality and about pleasure and a little practice for us to play with moving forward, not just today, but for us to carry with us through the week, through the year, and into our lives. Maybe we can even share it with the partner. It's been a couple of years since I've been back in front of this microphone, and it feels a little strange, I ain't gonna lie. When I took my first pause from the Fix Your Sex podcast, I thought it was going to be a few months, (laughs) but the pandemic got to pandemicking and life got to lifing. It's interesting because I'm looking back in hindsight and there was a period where the pandemic was offering so much spaciousness and rest and slowness and we were reveling in that. I was enjoying that moment. And I'm not sure what happened. I think maybe I got bored with it. And maybe somewhere inside of me, there was this need that I really believed in, that I had to produce more, that the rest I had had was enough, and that I needed to do some more stuff, to do some more things. And before I knew it, my calendar was busy. And I wasn't as present in the moment, looking around as to what was really happening and how much more rest we really needed with all of the other things that were present because there was so much more present 
There was more grief. There was more loss. There was more sadness, more isolation, more loneliness. And I think a lot of times when we experience emotions like that, when we start to actually be in that type of a space, acknowledging all of those kind of undesirable emotions and sensations that we feel, that we look around for something else to do, something to distract us survival mechanism and it's a disembodiment characteristic and I'm I'm just I've been very reflective of what that has meant for me and trying to come back from that with and noticing you know what that journey feels like too what does it feel like to come back from this space of like no you got to do a lot of stuff and acknowledging that that I'll probably teeter between that and rest uh, for a long time. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the teetering is not as often over time. But that's what this work is for for me, is to get to the point where the teetering is less, that I spend more time in the rest and the joy. And sure, sure, I'm going to go back to the to the stress of things, to the doing of things, but I wanna spend more time in the joy where possible, in the rest, in the satisfaction of life, in the not chasing, in the not doing, in the not productive phase. I would like to share a beautiful quote with you from Tara Brock. She writes, observing desire without acting on it enlarges our freedom to choose how we live. I'm letting that quote kind of set the theme for today. Letting that quote set the theme for this entire podcast. Because there was something about like that desire to go do something, to get busy, to be productive that I, I really wish I had spent more time with, just observing. And so I'm calling myself into that, into that practice of observing the desire, whatever it is, because it's not always sexual desire. Although usually it will get in the way of sexual desire if I don't observe it. And so I wanna, I wanna spend more time observing all the desires that I have, the desire to go do something the desire to remove the bug from the room, the desire, the desire, the desire. There's so many of them. And we move oftentimes just following desire without actually observing it first, without spending time, which eliminates our choice. Impulsivity eliminates choice. And I want more choice. As I think about what sexual liberation is for me, it's about choice. It's about having the opportunity to choose in a world that says I have to hurry up and make a decision. I wanna be able to observe the desires that I have and really make a choice from, from a centered place, from a place of, of my, my surety, my confidence, more often than that. It's not to say that sometimes decisions won't require 
for my own safety, a rapid response. But I want more time with my response. And the pandemic gave me time and I let go of it. I let go of it and then I had to let go of things because some things were just energetically too expensive. The podcast was one. Uh, Tantra Tuesday, we scaled back and I started doing that once a month. And even eventually the Tantra Fest just kind of made me squeeze on back down. Um, and I'm not sure if I was making all of those decisions from a place where I was really, really observing what I desired. Because there's so much information and desire. And I realized that what I really desired, after I sat with it for a little while, I started to learn that I, I really desired rest. Like not like a weekend, not like a scaled back schedule, but some real, real breaks, you know? And I don't come from that culture of like breaks. I'm a, I was in the military when I was young. You know, you get a couple weeks leave, um, but it's not, it's not the same. Uh, because you usually split that up. Same thing with corporate, right? I worked in corporate for a long time. And, you know, if I'm lucky at a really good job, I got 21 days off, but I never took them consecutively. There was always something in my head, in my heart, that said, well, if you leave for that long, you're replaceable. If you take a break for that long, someone else will take your job or will take your place. And even though I never said those words out loud to myself, somewhere in the back of my mind, that had to be living pretty strong. And I realized that when I went to take my first sabbatical ever, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It was so challenging for me to truly take a real sabbatical where I was like, I'm not answering my emails. I am not producing for, I'm not making content. I'm not producing um, for any purpose other than pleasure and creative, like, function, right? That I just, I couldn't, I couldn't help but like, okay, well, let me just, oh, the emails are getting high. Let me, let me go ahead and knock some of these out today. I don't have anything else to do. And so I'm trying again this year in December. I'm trying again with another sabbatical um, where I'm giving myself more opportunity to play and be free and I feel like December is a great month because so many of us are spending time with family and work is light in general. And, um, and I'm re like removing myself from this space of like, well, that's the, that's the money time, right? That's the time when people are really to spend their money. And so you should be working, you should be booking clients, you should be, what is that nonsense? I'm not, I'm, I'm stepping away from it this year. And I'm gonna spend time with friends. And I'm gonna spend time with my lovers. And I'm gonna spend time with myself. So these next four episodes of this season, it's a short season, these next four episodes will come. Um, this one, obviously, Welcome Back is our first one. And then we have two in October and two in November. And then I'll go on break and then we'll come back in January, starting fresh all over again. And I'm really excited for that. 
because the next year season I'll have guests on the podcast, which will be a new addition. And I can't wait to bring you into some conversations that I've been longing to have with friends and with mentors and colleagues. So I can't wait to have you join in on that conversation. Anyway, today um, I want to also kind of reflect on this idea of the sex addict. This is in the news. It's been in the news. You know, we had another well-known Hollywood perpetual violator make the news. And, you know, Russell Brand has got a sex addiction. And he brought that back into the online conversation. And I have been coming heart to heart with folks who have found someone to give them the diagnosis of sex addiction over the past couple years, pretty consistently. And navigating what that conversation could look like, what it, what it means to identify as a sex addict, to take that on as an identity. Um, before I go any further, I should, I should say that I am of the medically sound position. Um, there are theories and ideas, and it's all theory, but I am on the side of the theory that there is no such thing as a sex addiction that there is a sexual compulsion. And, and so my, my, I'm saying that just say my viewpoint is slanted in that bias, right? With that bias. So before we go any further, I just want you to know that. Um, but I don't want to have a debate about sex addiction, whether it's real or not, because I feel like that's really outside of my scope of work. What I am really curious about is if we could change the conversation about whether it's sex addiction or sexual compulsion, um, if we could just change the conversation about what, what leads us to say this thing, this level of sexual activity is an addiction or a compulsion. What makes sex even something that we associate with addiction? That's those are the things that I'm I'm kind of really curious about in this moment. And I really believe that in our society that addict sounds so much more helpless than compulsion. Compulsion sounds like something you should be able to take control over. Whereas addiction sounds like something that's taking control of you. The word addict, especially when we put it with sex, to the untrained Western ear, to the sympathetic Western ear, sounds like a victim. It sounds like so much of this is out of your hands, out of your control. It sounds like as much as you want to take responsibility for your actions, you just can't. And I really don't think we offer that type of victimhood or even grace to any other social disorder or mental unwellness. And I'm not saying we shouldn't offer it to addiction. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am curious that if 
we offered it to compulsion and other disorders if that would change the conversation. And I'm also in that curiosity looking at what would make that different about sex. If sex and pleasure weren't so viciously gatekept by patriarchy, what would the conversation on sex addiction look like? If desire was equally allowed on all spectrums of the gender, what would the conversation look like? If it wasn't about conquering, if there was no idea of that, if the orgasm gap wasn't continuously being stretched by ridiculous ideas like boys will be boys or the myth that the men are the only visual creatures on the planet despite all of these eyeballs, <laughs> what would the conversation about a so-called sex addiction look like then? I really don't believe we can afford to pretend like rape culture, toxic monogamy culture, and even purity culture are not all coming together to help really almost like a ticking time bomb just to blowing up people's ideas around how, how sex is supposed to play out for them. How they're supposed to be entitled to acting on their desire and how that entitlement can sometimes be confused as compulsion and addiction. And if you take the entitlement out of it, then it is just a high sex drive. If you put integrity into it, then it's a high sex drive. Then it's just increased desire or a term that I'm not really fond of, high libido, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think if we take the hunt and even the chase, because one of the things about um, pleasure being gatekept by patriarchy is that we hear things like, I just want to be chased. That's really, really allowing pleasure to just be something that happens to you instead of something that you get to choose, something that you're in control of, wanting to be chased as a part of your sexual experience. And it's not to say that you, you know, can't carve that in. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not knocking or yucking anyone's jump. I'm just pointing out that this reality of the chase, the hunt, is a part of me saying that I, I need to be convinced about my pleasure. Someone has to come in and, and woo me into my pleasure that I don't know where it lives at all. And, and that's from the gatekeeping. That's the pleasure gatekeeping that patriarchy has. The, ple the, the pressure, the pressure to be pure, the pressure to be inexperienced but still somehow know what you want, and the guilt and the shame that comes with that. And also I'll add the guilt and shame that comes with wanting, or like wanting to have a sexual experience but needing to pretend like something else is there. Needing to be a pickup artist, as Russell Brand so proudly called himself many years ago before 
before being lifted on platforms as the enlightened man. Um, and that pickup artist kind of nature is, is that's from pressure. That's from pressure of this idea that this is what I'm, how, how I get to show up, how I'm supposed to show up to, to be deserving of sex, the sex that I desire. And I don't believe that you come back from that and not, not end up in some type of unwanted energy. We may call that energy addiction, but it also might be something else. The pretending also. The pretending that desire doesn't exist or it's unnatural or somehow of some lower part of you. Like it's not a part of your humanness. It's a part of some, it's a section that you should be able to have some control over because you can't be with desire and observe it without acting on it. And I look at all of this and I think about like my sexual utopia, which I daydream about all the time. Because to me, liberation is always going to include a liberated body, which includes sexual liberation. And I've been on the activism scene for a long time. And I really believe that we eliminate the body. We eliminate sex and sexuality from our activism spaces because of all of these other things that could show up. Because we're terrified of them. We're terrified of that, that hunt and chase being present. We're terrified of the pressure. We're terrified of the pretending and what happens on the other side of that, the harm that gets caused. And so we don't actually look at it. We don't actually open up the conversation in a way that I think would really offer, offer some space for some reckoning, offer some space for some healing offer for that orgasm gap to start closing up and for patriarchy to loosen up some of the reins on that gatekeeping of our pleasure. So in my sexual utopia, in my sexually liberated world, where we all get to exist as free sexual beings, I don't think we would use that word addict at all. I think in a space where I get to say what I want as pleasure. I get to call in the pleasure that I desire. I get to recognize it, sit with it, acknowledge it, make a decision how I want to move with it, invite others into that, and hear the no's of others as they refuse the invitation. I believe that in that space, we would not call people like Russell Brand addicts. We would just simply call them abusers and rapists, violators. We wouldn't need to dress it up because the pickup artist doesn't actually have a role. For those of you that attended the Tantra Fest, I mean, just imagine that like week-long utopia that we have there. What good would a pickup artist be there? I can't even imagine what a pickup artist could say. I can't even imagine what a, what a sex addict um, would how they would move in that space without having actually some real deep personal reckoning of like, why am I doing all of this deception? Why do I have all this 
all my sexuality and my intimacy shrouded in so much deception and so much hurt. I don't think that others who've caused harm in other ways would be called anything other than liars and thieves. Because I think that's what taking radical responsibility for your desire does. And I think it changes the way you talk about your own self. That you actually talk about yourself differently. You wouldn't refer to yourself as an addict. It's not to say that compulsion would completely go away. But in the being present, in that pause that we take to observe our desire without acting on it, as Tara Breck so eloquently, eloquently put, that there's, the compulsion slows down. And I think we're satiated more in that light. I can, of course, only speak from my personal and witnessed experience. But I've witnessed it and I've felt it. And my compulsion in general is lessened by the listening to my body. My diet is different. And if I have a craving, a desire, that I acknowledge, I can actually move towards it. So I don't have shame around my food. I don't have shame around my sex, my intimacy, my pleasure. Because I spend some time with it. I don't have to hide it when I'm spending time with it either. I can actually talk about it. Like, oh, these are my desires. In my utopia. There's more of us doing that. There's more of us talking about what we desire without doing anything right away to have it happen. Being okay with desire existing without necessarily having to make it happen. That's the opposite of rape culture to me. It puts, it just puts a big barrier to that whole reality that we exist in, that I have a desire and it should be met. And I teach that we are, are we are worthy of all of our desires. That's for sure. I don't want anybody to take away from this conversation that I don't think we're worthy of our desires. Absolutely not. I really do believe we're worthy of them. And, and, and. They don't all have to be acted upon. We can all sit with them and choose. And there's so much more there. But we live in a culture that doesn't really teach anything about boundaries. We live in a culture that doesn't teach us how to be in our bodies. And I want that to change. I'm here in hopes to change that. That's why I love nudism. I love being naked because it allows us to be in our bodies beautifully and without any barriers, human-made barriers anyway, to the eye, I think there's such a, a feeling of safety that we experience when we're naked in community. Not just the person that is, like, not just me as the felt experience, the one that I get to experience as a naked body, but also as the person looking at someone else's body that's naked, 
and experiencing desire and curiosity about their body. Maybe I want to touch it or maybe I want to smell it or fuck it, right? Maybe I want to be intimate with that body. I want to feel those genitals on mine or I want to play with the nipples. Maybe those are desires that I have that show up and and maybe that's totally okay, right? Like maybe that's good, great. And I don't ever have to act on any of that. And I can actually see something and acknowledge its beauty, acknowledge its light. I can see another human and acknowledge their sensuality, their sexiness, their wholeness, their fuckability, and not feel like I'm in any way entitled to that body. Not feel like I even have to go and act on it and see if that person wants to engage with me in that way. There's so much I get to learn from just observing desire without acting on it. There's so much in an invitation to witnessing and to allowing myself to be witnessed safely. I often think about when I first moved to Atlanta from um, from Hawaii, where I had at that point spent most of my adult life. I moved to Hawaii when I was 28, and I left uh, just shy, just a month shy of my 40th birthday, a month and a half shy of my 40th birthday, and then I ended up returning afterwards. So all in all, I spent almost 15 years in Hawaii, 14 years. Um, but I had moved to Atlanta after an 11, 12-year stint in Hawaii where I literally could wear my bikini into the grocery store and no one would say anything. I mean, I had to, I've done it. I've been in Whole Foods to go grab something coming from the beach. And when I got to Atlanta, I wasn't walking around in a bikini, but I remember I went running. I went jogging because um, I've run 14 marathons in my life. I have been, um, had been a lifelong runner. Now that I'm in my 40s, my knees are doing something a little different. They'd rather I not do any long distance running. But I would put on my running outfit and I would go for a run. And when I got to Atlanta and I did that, it was, um, it stopped me from running, to be honest. I actually stopped running altogether because I couldn't run on the streets. I couldn't go for a morning jog or an afternoon run um, without feeling immensely unsafe, like just completely unsafe. I had, in Hawaii, I, no one cat called. No one blew their horns and yelled out of windows, and I had forgotten. It's not like I was unfamiliar. I had just forgotten what it felt like. You know, I grew up in Chicago, and... Uh, ran the lakefront where there are no cars and so everybody's running and there was this like little safe space right I lived right off right in uptown so I would just you know a few blocks from the lake and get on the path and there really was no space for cat calling there because everybody was running and it was just what it was there were no cars going by it was just felt different and then I moved to Hawaii where that didn't exist and I got to Atlanta and I went for my first run and there were horn blows. There were people, men, yelling out of the windows at me. 
um, trying to get my attention while I was going for a jog and it just felt incredibly unsafe for me. And I wonder what it would have been like if they had the wherewithal to observe their desire to witness a woman running down the street and to not have any need to act on it, to not have any need to let me know that that desire was there, to not have any need to share their commentary about my body or their desire to do something to it how we both could have existed very differently, right? What that safety actually feels like. And a lot of that really shaped my idea of creating community, creating spaces where we actually get to experience that because I believe that that really led to some deep healing for me, being able to just be in my body without having um, any shame around showing it, around the desire that I might cause for someone, right? Because I grew up with blue balls being a thing. I think we all know better now. <laughs> but I grew up with blue balls being a real thing where I had to take uh, some level of responsibility as a young girl for existing and my existing causing an erection and or arousal in, in a man. And what that meant, I had to not, you know, not show up fully as myself because that might be too much for for a young man to handle and carrying that with you for a long time which many of us have and are still carrying many of us in life like that my my beauty my sensuality my body my curves my smile even um, is somehow responsible for someone else's pleasure and desire and that they may act on it and that then would in turn be my fault. That somehow getting into a space where you could experience something completely different though can really change so much about our, our experience. And you know, we say we're doing away with, with rape culture. We're working towards moving past and beyond this, this space that we've been so hideously embedded in for a long time. But I really think that, you know, we're not, <laughs> We're not doing enough. That um, there's so many lessons that should be taught much younger. But I wish young girls, especially, never had to hear about blue balls. Um, I wish that young folks in general ne never even were presented with this idea that this that this is something that is worthy of some type of treatment, <laughs> other than like, being with the sensation. Right. Imagine if if I felt entitled to a massage because I chose to ran um, to run a marathon, like I felt entitled to that. Not that I was going to go out and try and pursue someone that was offering a massage, but that that someone should rub me. <laughs> that level of entitlement is not being untaught. Like I see the entitlement continuing and just in a very and just in varied ways. And we don't, we don't have a concept of boundaries. And it's challenging for us to teach boundaries, especially to young people, especially as adults that think, you know, I'm an adult and you're a child. And so I get, I, I get to tell you what to do and you don't get to have any boundaries around that. 
and how we carry that into our adulthood, like how I carry that into my adulthood. And I want, I, I want us to create more spaciousness for, for better boundaries, for exciting ways to be liberated and say yes. Um, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown said that our, our no makes way for our yes. And I think a lot of times we, we think about boundaries in this container of no, right? But boundaries are no's and yeses all together. Um, and boundaries aren't indictments against your action or your inaction. Like we almost take uh, someone else's boundary as, as a barrier to our relationship as opposed to the gift that it really is, this space of safety. Like, I go back to being being in community and being naked together um, and having space for an invitation and having space for no or yes to that invitation based on my boundaries, based on my, my needs and whatever ways that I have created for myself to, or acknowledge for myself to have those needs met. And I want that for us. I want us to experience ourselves in a way that says, um, here's some space for your yes. Because it's in that holding, it's in that clenching, it's in that manipulation of ourselves. And we, we manipulate ourselves into a whole different experience than the one we are having so that we can survive, so that we can be with others. Um, and I want us to move away from that so that we can actually experience more pleasure. If you want that for yourself. And I imagine that if you tuned into a podcast called the Fix Your Sex Podcast, then you're probably looking for ways to make your sex better, to make your sex more enjoyable for you. And it's in that shrinking down, it's in that compression, it's in that tension that we create in our bodies as we manipulate ourselves into a different experience so that we can be with others, that we actually clamp down on the, the, the potential for our, our pleasure. We actually restrict our orgasmic potential in that tension. I believe that the orgasm is the absence of tension. When they call it the little death, and I've experienced the little death, and when they call it that, in my mind, in my experience, I witness the body at its most pleasure-filled, at its most uh, spaciousness for pleasure. And I think about all the things that are in the way of that. And if you do a quick scan of your own body about what could be in the way of your pleasure in this moment, right? How are you feeling and what could make you feel a little bit better? When we do pleasure mapping, we use a scale. So let's say on a scale of one to 10, 10 being I feel amazing, pleasure-filled, orgasmic, juicy, explosive, delicious, and one being meh, I'm nowhere near any of that, I'm in pain, I'm sad, I am whatever is on the other side of that, 
the dryness. I'm not, you know, there's no flow. I don't feel blood moving through my body. I'm disconnected. That if that's your scale and you're on a five and you're going to move from five to five and a half in this moment, what would that be? What would, what would need to happen? And for me in this moment, like it would be a little less tension in my lower back. I can feel that. I had a very intense workout this morning. And so my body is really feeling some of that leftover and, you know, some more movement there probably would really help. That's what I feel in my body. So if I could get up right now and hit pause and just invite that in, then that would help, I believe, allow me to experience more pleasure. It's that, it's that kind of movement, right? That when I get to the point where I have nothing, nothing in my way of pleasure, that I am just pleasure, that I am just orgasmic, that that is my natural state. That is my natural state of wonder, of expression, of joy, of smiling and lightness, and I feel so much more. I feel the sensation of the air on my skin. I feel the, the temperature I'm noticing. Every part of me, I feel tingling beneath my skin. I can feel my heartbeat. I feel my breath. I feel my pussy. I feel moisture developing. I feel pulsing. I'm much more aware of myself. And we move into that and the little things that constrict us, the ways in which we constrict ourselves, start to open up that my orgasmic potential also opens up. When I allow myself to be in relationship with somebody, connecting with their body, I feel more of them and I feel more of their energy the more safe that they feel in that space. All of that is a part of this expansion that we feel when we stop clamping ourselves down, when we stop restricting ourselves, when we stop making ourselves small when we can go for a run without feeling like we have to guard ourselves, when we can be in our movement in front of others, when we can be witnessed and feel safe, when we can be naked and feel safe, then we can say yes or no from that space and it won't have anything to do with survival, but just pleasure. The willingness to experience ourselves is on that side. Everything else is experiencing ourselves as we relate to everyone else. And a lot of times there's this losing of ourselves in that. There's this, there's this manipulation. We manipulate ourselves out of the undesirable or unpleasant experiences into the ones that we believe are more worthy in community. We manipulate our shape. Oftentimes not standing up fully, not allowing ourselves to be in our full length and our full width, like really just being. We manipulate ourselves into a different shape so that we don't outshine or appear too big or take up too much space for others. All of that, all of that is in the way. 
in the way of our pleasure, in the way of our orgasm. And all of that eventually gets us to disconnect from ourselves. And so the practice that I want to bring you into today is a simple one. I was in class recently teaching um, one of my trainings for somatic sexology. And we, we, you know, we have a retreat here. Maybe you don't know. But we have the class is a three-part course that we do um, to prepare folks to go out and work in the field as somatic sexologists. And for my program, there's a bunch of them out there, but for my program, we start with touch. We start with understanding touch and the body's relationship to touch. And then we move into understanding some of the more nuances of sexology and, and human sexuality, um, what folks might call deviations and things. And then from there, we move into coaching. So there's three parts. And the first, at the end of each part, there's a little retreat. So we just had our little retreat recently. Um, and it's a four-day training, which we go through so much. It's really, really beautiful, but also very intense and very mind-opening, heart-opening, and genital-opening. And so we have this practice where I start talking about how we bring folks into their genital awareness. And when we're offering um, either yoni massage as a practitioner or teaching someone else uh, how to offer yoni massage, which is what a lot of a lot of the graduates do. They end up going to teach partners and, and couples how to offer yoni massage to each other. Um, one of the things that came up was I was talking about the pelvic floor and our ability to isolate our muscles in our pelvic floor or in our whole body, right? Like actually going in the body and finding muscles that are there and isolating them as much as possible. And some muscles will work always in conjunction. I mean, all muscles really work always in conjunction with other muscles. And so there's always going to be an antagonist, but we want to really get, um, really get into our, into our genitals and into our pelvic floor and start noticing where, where we can find ourselves. Because a part of that, like, disconnection that we create with ourselves as we make ourselves small, as we try not to be so responsible for someone else's pleasure, or even as we shame ourselves out of our own body's responses, our smells, our juiciness, as we want that to not be present, we become disconnected with parts of our being, parts of our body, especially parts of our genitals. And one of the things that we do in, that I teach in Yoni Massage is to actually have the client or the lover find your fingers with the front, back, or sides of their vaginal canal. And in order to get to that point, there is some work that has to be done. And so I want to invite you, whether you have a yoni or not, whether you, no matter what your genitals are, to invite you into this practice of finding your pelvic floor and isolating a little bit. And so it doesn't matter what you're doing. You can, you can do this. You can do this while you're seated. You can do this while you're, while you're standing or lying down. This is a practice you can do in any position. 
but I want you just for one moment just to pretend like you're sucking through a straw from your pelvic floor. So not pulling all the way up, not trying to clench, but just a gentle sucking through a straw. Or it's not a smoothie. It's an iced tea. So there's no need to suck really hard. Just try and pull up really gently with your pelvic floor. And just see what you notice. And you can release it. And do it again. See what you notice. And then release it. Now this third time, what I want you to do in this practice is I want you to pull up, but this time I want you to ignore your sphincter. I want you to tell your sphincter to stay out of it. Your booty hole has nothing to do with this practice. Not right now, not in this moment. In this moment, we're just gonna pull up gently sipping through the straw from the front. Um, just pull up and release. Now you may have noticed that your front abs joined in, which is one of the reasons why having a strong core is so directly related to your orgasmic potential. Did you notice that? Try it again and see if you can feel that. If you just sit very gently through that straw, through the front, butthole is completely relaxed and not involved in this party at all. And only go up as high as you can until your sphincter's like, well, I gotta join in now. That's where you stop. So it might not be a super long sip. It might be just a quick, who knows, whatever. You'll see what takes, where you go with it. And just pull up and notice that maybe you feel the abs start to be involved. Maybe you just notice that it's really hard to actually isolate from the rectum, which is fine. That's, that's just, we're just observing. We're not trying to fix anything. We're just paying attention to what's there. And as you start to do that practice, as you start to get into that and just notice, it's almost like you're doing a little wink with the front. Right? And see if you can have less of your abs. So only go up to the point right before your abs really want to join in. Those front lower abs really want to join in because they're a part of the pelvic floor. That's right. Your abs are a part of your pelvic floor. If you didn't know that. Your core and your pelvic floor are one. If you didn't know that. Now you know. But as you pull up on that, you'll start to notice things. And one thing that happens is it really awakens the pelvic floor. So you may notice that you're feeling aroused or a sense of arousal there. And that's, that's true, right? So as I start to pull my energy there, as I start to move there, blood flow is inevitably going to go there. And blood flow is one of those signals of arousal. So you can, you can feel that. And you can play with that for a while. Sometimes when I tell people, people, and I tell people this all the time, I believe that we should have a masturbation practice that is daily, every day. That does not mean you have to pull out the magic wand or the Master Blaster 3000. It just means that you're connecting with your body sensually every day. So this also is masturbation. This also is self-pleasure. It's about allowing yourself just to feel that. And once you get that kind of like, okay, that feels comfortable, to minimize even more. So then just try to focus just on the front wall, right? The part just behind your mom's pubis, the part that just maybe it lifts you up a little bit, right? And then you can isolate. 
just practicing. It's That's all it is. It's just a practice. It's just getting to know your body in a way that I don't think a lot of people suggest that we get to know our body. We spend a lot of time doing, you know, if we're working out, we're doing crunches and we're doing these and animal flow and we're in ice baths now. We're doing all these things to bring our awareness into parts of our bodies that don't necessarily show up for us sexually, not taking away from any of the other parts. I love animal flow. Um, and I love how strong it makes my core. So I'm definitely not knocking that because it definitely helps with my orgasm potential, being able to move around like a kid on the floor. Um, and there's this other stuff that I want to do too. So it's your practice that you take this. You take it as much as you want. This is just play for you. But play with yourself. As we talk about fixing your sex or bettering your sex, making your sex more the way that you want it is what I mean by fixing it. Making it more for you. And it requires a little getting to know you. Getting to know more about your own body, about your own yoni, about your own penis, about whatever is going on, about your energetic dick, about your energetic pussy. Like, what can you feel? What are you noticing? Where does your mind go as you play the game, as you play with your body? What thoughts pop up in your head repeatedly? What ways do you distract yourself? All of those are ways in which we come into having a little bit more awareness about our body, our pleasure, and hopefully accessing a better sexual experience for ourselves and for our community, creating space for more pleasure for all of us to experience. I thank you for tuning in for a little bit this morning, this afternoon, night, whenever you're finding me, wherever you are in the world. I hope that you are able to remind yourself that pleasure is your birthright and that you are radically responsible for it. I hope that you can imagine your own sexual utopia where you get to have less tension, hide yourself less, make yourself show up fully and take up as much space as possible in pleasure and power, and until next time. Thank you for listening. This episode of the Fix Your Sex podcast was brought to you by Authentic Consent Facilitator Training, a six-week online course to help you and your community feel more safe as you negotiate your yes and your no in play spaces. For more information, visit www.atltantra.org.